This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Next47, the global venture firm backed by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On March 27th, the Washington Post traveled to America's tech epicenter, the Bay Area, for the first time to convene the next installment of the Technology 202, a series of conversations about the changing regulatory climate and the relationship between innovation and public policy. In this segment, Vijaya Gadi, Twitter's legal, public policy, and trust and safety lead, talks about policies Twitter is creating to deal with offensive content and misinformation while facilitating civic discourse and free expression online. Let's listen. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. My name is Liz Dwaskin. I'm the Post Silicon Valley correspondent. And I'm very pleased to help kick off the Post's first live San Francisco event, the Technology 202, with a conversation with Twitter's legal, policy, and trust and safety lead, someone I've always enjoyed talking to, and one of the two most senior women at Twitter, Fajia Gadi. Um, now let's get started. Thank you, Liza. Welcome to the neighborhood. We're glad to have you guys here. <laughs> yeah, we're glad to. I've been here for six years, so now that now we're now it that we're growing, like now we're growing. <laughs> yeah. Now it's it's. Um, so I wanted to start with just the ten thousand foot question, which is, you know, in the last year, sentiment, political, the public sentiment is really turning um, in a very dramatic way against Silicon Valley. Um, I'd say again, more against Facebook than others, but certainly there's this feeling that companies haven't stepped up to their responsibilities, commensurate with the influence and power that these services have. And um, I'm, do you think it's fair? I do think it's fair. I think um, people have lost trust in uh, technology because they don't understand it. I think um, you're absolutely correct. We have a lot of influence in the real world and we, with that influence comes a lot of responsibility to make sure that um, we understand the negative impacts of our platforms. And so I think we have a long way to go to build trust with people. And part of that is transparency and uh, being open about not just uh, what we've seen, but the challenges we're facing and how we're attempting to uh, tackle them. Yeah, and we'll, we'll chat about all of Twitter's initiative on healthy conversations and what that means. But um, yeah, I think just like, you know, you think about even conspiracies like Pizzagate, where you have a person clearly slandering somebody and causing real world harm. And I think a lot of just everyday people look at that and say, how can that be legal? And now you have Europe on the brink of holding tech companies more liable. You have questions in the United States about whether there'll be changes to the Section 230 that gives tech companies immunity. So my question is, do you think that the whole idea of a platform that Silicon Valley really pioneered, do you think that needs to change? Again, I think the, the right way of thinking about this is understanding the impact that these platforms are having and com commensurate to that, taking responsibility for those impacts. And for a long time, I don't think that we understood that. Um, I will speak for Twitter, can't speak for the entire industry, although sometimes we're asked to do that. Um, you know, certainly when Twitter was started, the intent was not um, to have negative impacts. It was really to bring people together, to give people who had never had a voice, particularly um, in lots of parts of the world, to give them a voice, to be able to participate, to have a public conversation. Did you think about misinformation and harassment? So well, I started at Twitter back in, in uh, 2011 and really in this role in 2013. So um, I can't speak to like what the original intent was, 
But we certainly thought about abuse and harassment. I mean, that's been a common theme um, on the internet for, for decades. Sure. I mean, it's not something that's new. It obviously takes a different flavor uh, nowadays and the speed and virality, other, other things really impact that in ways that I think we hadn't seen before. Um, do you think there's anything, though, that tech companies should be forced legally to do? You talk about taking responsibility. What about being forced to do it as is on the table in Europe and also in some ways in the United States? I, I think that the reason that regulations come to be is because companies are not meeting the expectations of their consumers. And so I think of privacy is a great example of one that there should be some universal uh, way to protect the privacy of individuals. There should be universal standards about what, how data is collected, what data is collected, the transparency around it, the controls around it. I think that that is a perfectly reasonable thing to legislate and one that we're gonna see. We're already seeing it in the state of California and we're probably gonna see it in a lot of other places. Obviously, Europe passed uh, GDPR and that's something that we've all, as, as an industry, had to comply with and we will. What about, what I want to ask you about antitrust, because you guys are in a really interesting position as Twitter. So it's like when you see something like Elizabeth Warren making one of her first platforms um, to talk about the power of tech monopolies and regulating tech monopolies, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of this in the 2020 campaigns. If, when you're Twitter, do you think to yourself and say, hey, look, if we didn't exist, Facebook would be closer to a monopoly than they already are, and tech has accumulated too much power? Or do you see it and say that whole conversation hurts us? That's an interesting question. Usually what I think is this conversation is not relevant to us. Okay. <laughs> and um, that's a good thing because there are a lot of conversations going on in the world that are. Um, but this one doesn't feel, we don't have multiple businesses. We have a single platform. Um, this just doesn't feel as relevant to us. And quite frankly, I just don't focus as much on the impacts to, to the other platforms. What about your bigger rivals? Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure it will impact them, and they are focused on it. And do you think they are monopolistic? <laughs> oh, um, Not to put you on the spot or anything. That's well, my job, I, though. Um, <laughs> I think that there are very specific, specific definitions of what that is in the law. And what I will say is that network effects are very, very powerful. And um, it's something that um, every company that's starting in this space is focused on how do you achieve scale. And if you already have existing networks of scale, it's much easier to leverage that and to build something. So um, I don't know if that's a monopoly, but that's certainly a powerful institutional platform uh, that a lot of companies have is that existing scale. Right, you leverage that scale into other businesses. It that's gives right. you even more power. Um, back in August, your CEO and co-founder, Jack Dorsey, was on a media tour. You were with him. You came to the Washington Post. And I remember he told us, we did a story about it. He said, literally everything about Twitter was on the table. He literally said, we're open to changing everything. He said, quote, I don't like the incentives we're building into our products. I don't think they are correct anymore. So seven months later, that was August, I want to just ask you some rapid-fire yes or no questions about what's actually going to change about Twitter. Okay. <laughs> so just the like button, is it going to go away? Uh, I'm not aware of it going away. Follower counts, you talked about that. Are they going away? No. I think for those first two, sorry, you know it's a lightning round, but the question is not just whether they go away, but how prevalent they are and how prominent they are totally. in the product. Totally. Yeah. And? And so we're testing that. So we have a, a new prototype app. Uh, called uh, TWTTR, uh, lowercase Twitter. We call it little t. Um, <laughs> and uh, in that, we, uh, in, in order to encourage a better flow of conversation, uh, that information like likes and follower uh, accounts are hidden, you know, a tap away. And it's not because it's not 
relevant at all. But once you're already in an engaging conversation, do you really need to see that information? Um, so those are the types of things we're testing. Like, what does it do when you don't have something prominent on its face? That's fascinating. What, re what kind of results are you seeing? Do people um, behave differently? That's a good question. I don't have the results from that. I mean, this is um, hot off the presses, so we just launched this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, what about labeling bots? That's something you talked about. Yes, we are, we are looking more into that. I don't think we have an answer for you because it's not as simple as, um, entirely simple to identify them all. <laughs> um, but labeling in, in general, uh, what I would call um, providing more color on the types of accounts on Twitter is something that we are definitely thinking about. And what about some kind of banner that labels something as misinformation, this story is false? That we don't have um, currently in the works. But again, what we're thinking about is annotations. Like, how can we provide more context around tweets? And um, I know that we're going to talk about some of the other um, ideas that we have to provide more, again, more context to c content that's on the platform itself. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go there. What other changes are coming down the pike? Are there any other wild yeah. card? Because Jack mentioned a lot of them <laughs> seven months ago. Well, a couple of the other things around the incentives. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, right now, uh, if someone replies to one of your tweets, um, you basically, whether it's relevant or not, the reply is going to show up there. So one of the things we're um, experimenting with is the ability for the original tweeter um, who starts the tweet conversation to potentially uh, hide tweets behind some sort of um, interstitial or banner so that the conversation could flow more naturally related to the topic of the tweet. So again, changing the incentives, changing how we think about uh, the conversation place. And again, Twitter is all about public conversation. This is what we want to encourage. And so how can we encourage more of that? And when you tweet something and random people are tweeting things that are, aren't relevant in reply, it kind of interrupts the flow of the conversation. So maybe if we give more power to people who are starting a conversation, it could change the incentives and the dynamics of that conversation. Hmm. And so you, that's one of the things that we're looking at. Yeah, and I know obviously as, as head of policy, you know the big changes Twitter has made are around um, opposing dehumanizing tweets and also tweets that could cause real world harm, which is, I can imagine, really hard to put into practice. Um, what are you doing there? So one of the things, um, well, well, last fall we, we put out uh, for public comment a proposal around a policy to uh, prohibit what we call dehumanizing speech on the platform. And the reason that we did that was because we'd been working with a lot of social scientists and um, uh, uh, researchers and historically there are certain types of speech, particularly by people in uh, positions of power that can lead to real world harm, abuse and violence um, to certain communities, um, particularly marginalized groups. So this is something that we're aware of and obviously we have a lot of public figures and uh, influential uh, people on Twitter and this type of content, uh, what can we do with it? What should we do with it? So we released that for public comment last year. We got about 8,000 comments mm. and we're working towards um, implementing that in the product. And as part of that, what it's forced us to do is not just think about the policy, because I think a lot of people really focus on what the rule is, but how does the product, how can we use the product canvas to support the policy in a meaningful way? And um, what we thought about is today we have um, what we call a newsworthiness or a public interest clause to our rules, uh, which people talk about a lot. Right, people said, we've said, well, you know, doesn't that mean that Trump gets total immunity for whatever he says, no matter how hurtful it is, or other public figures? And, and that's not the case. There is absolutely a line uh, of a type of content. Um, an example would be a direct violent threat against an individual that we wouldn't leave on the platform. Um, 
because of the danger that it poses to that individual. But there are other types of content that we believe have um, are newsworthy or are in the public interest that people may want to have a conversation around. But today, when we leave that content on the platform, there's no context around that. And it just lives on Twitter, and people can see it, and they just assume that that's the type of content or behavior that's allowed by our rules. Even though your rules say no bullying. Exactly. So uh, one of the things we're working really closely on uh, with our product and engineering folks is how can we label that? This gets back to part of our early conversation. How can we put some context around it so people are aware that that content is actually a violation of our rules and it's serving a particular purpose in remaining on the platform? So you're literally labeling a tweet saying, this tweet is bullying but we're gonna show it to you anyway. Um, well, in the context of dehumanization, you may want to have a tweet that uh, is limited in visibility and someone has to click through because it's sensitive or because you wanna provide the context, like this may be considered dehumanizing speech. And to, again, like force people to like acknowledge like this is, what this is and then make the choice of whether to see it or not versus it just being on the platform uh, with full visibility. So it's interesting because it's almost like taking a much greater editorial position around content? Well, it's taking a position on what's a violation of our rules and what's not and being very, very clear about it. Right, rather than just taking something down and people don't necessarily know why their tweets are taken down. Yes, although we do, we do provide now, and this is a more recent, uh, we provide a little tombstone, because like, you know, if something's been de deleted uh, from the platform, it says this tweet was removed because it was a violation of the Twitter rules. So we're trying to provide more and more context. So that's a small one. This would be obviously a much bigger one, and it's one that we've been talking about. So I'm curious, what, what's your end game here? You know, a lot of people ask this, like the big question about Silicon Valley is really, you know, a lot of come in the past two years since Russian meddling, um, you know, a lot of these abuses have come to light. The companies are putting a lot, like Quitter, you're putting a lot of new resources into purging fake accounts, cleaning up abuse. But what's the end game really? Because the big question is, can, can the companies ever weed out fully or to a satisfying extent to society the kinds of harms that we're seeing? Like, what's the kind of, what's the gold standard for you? What's the end game? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So um, for me, in my role, what I'm trying to do is support the mission of the company, which is to provide a place for public conversation on uh, topics that are important to the world, or t topics that are important in your community, or topics that are important to you. And in order to do that, we have to have a rules-based framework, because while everyone, I do believe very strongly, and our rules are based on this fr framework, that uh, free expression is a fundamental right, um, that everyone has a voice and they should be able to use it, there is a line between doing that and um, you know, committing uh, what we call abuse or harassment and crossing over into a place where you're preventing someone else from expressing their voice. And so I think that that's an enormously challenging and complicated task to do at scale, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of the complexity of the cultural context and nuance that that would enable, require all around the world. So I think that this is just an enormously challenging task. And no, no one will ever get this 100% right. But there is a long, long way to go in terms of how much better we can be at it, and that's what we're trying to do right now. And then we're trying to think into the future. Like, what is it that people will want from us as a company? Is it just about always removing bad content? Or is it also about being a platform where our algorithms 
and uh, our machine learning is actually surfacing healthy and relevant content. And that's another area of focus. It's not just always gonna be about removing the bad, but how do we move into the future and make sure that our algorithms are transparent, um, that they're explainable, that they're surfacing relevant and healthy content? That's really what this is about and what I think the future push will be on us. So why did something go viral? As one question you might explain to people and then it's, it's almost a little bit like YouTube's approach where YouTube is taking, is trying to solve some of their problems by taking a more Google-like approach by saying, okay, the minute a crisis happens, we're gonna just surface news on the homepage that we've curated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people still get to the bad stuff pretty easily and they acknowledge that, but there is that, but there's that approach, like we're just gonna take an editorial stance. I think that there's information and context that needs to be provided. And I think the other piece of this that's really important is for people to be able to turn off those algorithms. And that's another place where we've been experimenting. And so in Twitter, in our home timeline now, you can turn off the algorithm and you can kind of see the difference. What is it that uh, we or our algorithms are surfacing and what is it that you would have found otherwise? I wanna ask you two more questions. We're just you know two or so weeks out from the terrible New Zealand tragedy. Um, take us into that first 24 hours for you. Yeah, that was a really um, horrible, horrible attack. And uh, my, my heart goes out to the communities and the, the families that were impacted and, and to, of course, everyone in New Zealand. I think um, for us, it was about rapidly responding as quickly as possible. One, making a decision on the content um, that was being posted, and then second, like how can we move as quickly as possible to remove that content from Twitter? We viewed uh, both the um, video itself as well as the manifesto as a glorification of violence, glorification of terrorism, the mere existence of those things. So um, we took the position that those were violations of our rules because we don't permit that type of behavior on Twitter, and we moved as quickly as possible to remove that. Now. What we found um, was that it was an enormously challenging task. Um, we saw over 300 different variations of the video on Twitter itself. I think within like how what time frame? Oh, I don't have the exact time frame, but to, to date, I think um, over 300 different variations. The wow. industry as a whole saw over 800, I believe, because wow. we are sharing hashes so that we can, as an industry, also um, leverage each other's work on some of this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically a game of whack-a-mole. Like, we would identify one particular version of this video, and the tech, we could use that technology to prevent further uploads of that, then the video would modify, and we'd have to go through that process again. So um, we've removed over 20,000 tweets uh, related to this, and it was interesting because at the same time that we were trying so hard to remove this content from our platform, we did see this content on mainstream media sites and um, other places, and certainly on the darker corners of the internet, it was everywhere. So it's, it feels like a leaky bucket, right? Like there's only so much a platform like ours can do when that content is clearly available in so many other places. What grade would you give yourself in what mark would you give yourself in terms of how you handled that crisis? Um, a for effort. <laughs> um, but I think that we have a long way to go to uh, build more robust technology that can not only um, identify, like take the hashes and identify variations of it, but to, to the extent that this content first appears on our platform, proactively identify it. I think that's the key. In this particular case, we were able to proactively identify about 85% of um, the content, like our teams or our technology, but we need to be faster and um, it needs to be that we, you know, we obviously were notified about this outside of the company. It would be great if our technology could tell us. 
that this was happening. Yeah, we were, I mean, I was, the, the most common question I got after the New Zealand story when all this stuff was not coming down from platforms like yours and YouTube, people were saying after we did the story, how come the companies uh, can't just immediately recognize a variation of a video? Can you help us understand that? How come you can't immediately recognize some tweak on the video and just make a carbon copy of it and then prevent it at upload? Can that, with all of the AI Silicon yeah. Valley has, can that really be so hard? I think we're gonna get there. Um, I'm not an engineer by training, so I'm probably not the right person <laughs> to answer exactly why we can't do that. But trust me when I say that we were asking those very questions as well. Um, I wanna ask one last quick one. Sure. Um, so you're one of the top women at Twitter, um, and I've recently seen you posting a pinned tweet about a group that's pushing startups in Silicon Valley to give more paid family leave. And people always think of Silicon Valley as the land of amazing benefits, but the reality is startups tell you that you can have no work-life balance. They're not family-friendly at all. Um, do you think, how much do you think these, these not family, this culture is actually holding women, women back, like a year after Me Too? Well, I think um, one of the things that um, I'm, I'm affiliated with a group called Hashtag Angels, and we're, we do a bunch of angel investing, and we partnered with a company called Carta to do an analysis of over 6,000 startups. And we talk a lot in the industry about the income gap between men and women, but we haven't focused really on the equity gap, which is really, really huge. So women make up 33% of uh, employees and founders at startups, but they only hold 9% of the equity. And that matters because the vast majority of wealth that's created in Silicon Valley is because of the equity, not because of the salary that you're earning. And if you as a woman in a particular point in your career can't go to a startup because they don't offer certain types of benefits, then you're basically opting out of that wealth creation. And it's just one of a number of other things. And this is just this is for women, but this also applies to people of color. So this is a big issue, and I think um, you know, the industry as a whole has moved forward tremendously on this. I think most large, larger tech companies offer tremendously beneficial paid leave policies uh, for families. But I, I do think it is an important part of getting startups to get there too, because again, like the next great startup, all that money that they're gonna create, and women are already underrepresented in terms of founders, they're underrepresented in terms of early leadership, and they're underrepresented in terms of engineers. These are the primary bases of early cap tables um, at Silicon Valley companies. Right. And if they're not there because they can't afford to be there at a certain time in their careers, then it's just exacerbating the wealth gap. Well, um, you just gave me a story idea, which is covering the wealth gap and the IPOs. So thank you, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.